0: Bet sefer, Bet Talmud, Bet Midrash. These are the three stages of the discipleship journey in first century Judaism, the three stages of religious instruction during that time. Here's how the stages worked. In the first stage, boys, ages 6 to 10, would be tasked with memorizing the Torah. That's the first five books of your current Old Testament. I have that represented here. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Numbers and Deuteronomy. Every word memorized. And at that point, those boys would be faced with a choice. They could either continue in their religious instruction, if they felt particularly called or gifted in that way, or they could go and start to learn the trade of their family. But the best students from Bet Sefer, they move on to Bet Talmud. And in Bet Talmud, these boys, now ages 10 through 14, would memorize the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, which I have here. That's the rest of your Old Testament every word memorized, and then those boys, again, would be faced with the same choice. They could either continue in their religious instruction if they were particularly gifted, or they could go and be a carpenter or a fisherman or whatever their family did. But the best of the best students, they would move on to bet Midrash, the third stage. And at about age 14 or 15, these boys would approach a rabbi who was the religious teacher or instructor at that time, and they'd ask to become that rabbi's disciple. And at that point, the rabbi would proceed to drill them with questions, all about scripture, how they interpreted it, how they read it, how well they knew it. And the rabbi would do this in order to determine, can this boy do what I do? Can he become like me someday? And if the rabbi determined that this boy could become like him, eventually he would say, sure, you become my disciple. And at that point, everything in the boy's life changed for good. He left his family and traveled around with this rabbi everywhere. Rabbis were known to travel from town to town and talk about the law and scriptures with well other rabbis. He would eat the same food as him. He'd sleep in the same areas as him. He'd play video games with him. He'd do everything possible with this rabbi. And this was so much so that people at that time would encourage new disciples with a phrase. They'd say, May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And that's kind of an odd phrase for us today, but in the ancient Middle East it made a lot of sense because traveling anywhere was a dusty affair. And if you were following closely behind someone, it was inevitable that they were going to kick up dust onto you at some point. So that's what disciples were. They were covered in their dust. More than this, rabbis, when they would teach, would sit in an elevated position, and their disciples would sit beneath them in their literal dust. Discipleship was a dusty affair. And Jesus knew that this was the case. This was when Jesus walked the earth. And so when he called his disciples, he had this sort of committed life. Mind, this sort of transformation in mind. He called his disciples to a life of clinging closely to him, becoming covered with the dust of his teaching, of his presence, of his life, and ultimately, the Spirit of God. But Jesus didn't just stop there. He didn't just tell his disciples to become dusty. He also called them to bring others along with them, to invite other people to this discipleship journey. And that's why we started the sermon series called Spiritual Conversations here in the Springfield Town. We want to be people who not only become covered in the dust of Jesus, but also bring others along with us in that journey. And today we're going to talk about how Jesus says this process of invitation works, what it looks like. So if you have a Bible, turn with me in it to Matthew, chapter 28. Matthew's the first book of your New Testament, if you're flipping through or going through on that. If you don't have a Bible, Come up to me after church. I will get you a Bible that is yours to keep. We want to make sure that you have the ability to join us when we read together on Sundays, but also read in your own day-to-day life. Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to be reading from verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountains which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority... In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Peace you, God. May God. These are the last words that we have. From Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. These are the last things that he spoke to his disciples. So they're pretty important words, right? His parting words before he ascends to heaven. But in order for us to fully grasp what's going on here, in order to get the dynamics at play between him and his disciples, I think it's helpful to take a couple steps back and remember where we've come from. Just a short time before this, Jesus, uh, towards the end of his ministry, aimed himself at the city of Jerusalem. And he entered Jerusalem in what we as Christians call the triumphal entry. Uh, We celebrate this on Palm Sunday. Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem and he is worshipped as the Messiah. He's worshipped as the one who the Jewish scriptures said would come and free the people from their bondage. They expected him to liberate them from their oppressors. And the disciples were there for that moment. They watched it all happen. And then, just a week later, after Palm Sunday, he was brutally murdered by those same people. The people who were supposed to know him best crucified him on an ancient torture device called cross. And his disciples were there for that as well. So you can imagine their confusion. It's like Jesus arrived, this was it, this was the pinnacle, and now he's gone. They're confused, they're isolated, and they're traumatized by the last few days. But then, at the start of chapter 28, we arrive here at this point in the story, and it seems like clarity has arrived. Jesus died, but he's resurrected. He's risen from the grave, and he shows himself to Mary earlier in chapter 28, and he tells Mary, hey, go to my disciples. Tell them if they travel to Galilee, they can see me there. Just tell them to come to Galilee. And you'd think that that response, that sort of clarity, would result in uproarious praise from the disciples, right? They would be sprinting out their door to find Jesus, but that's not how the story goes here. See, these men, they're still wounded from the last few days. Consider what they've been through. They've watched as the one that they committed multiple years of their lives to, that they followed around all over the Middle East. They've watched as he's been brutally murdered by the very empire that they thought he'd come to conquer. They thought he'd lost. They were brutalized by what happened. And now, apparently, he's shown up, risen from the dead, which obviously doesn't happen. He shows himself to Mary and has told them to travel the three- or four-day journey from Jerusalem to Galilee. That's a long journey. And so they don't show up here at verse 16 super excited. They're not sprinting to Jesus here. They're limping to him. That's where the disciples are, and Matthew subtly communicates that to us right away. Before Jesus says anything to these disciples, we learn who these disciples are. Notice Matthew in in verse 16, he says the 11 disciples arrived. Now that's should strike us as odd, because in this story, we know who the disciples are. They've been around for a long time, right? Why would he need to say 11? And then, why the number 11, right? Jesus called 12 disciples, not 11 disciples. But all we have to do is turn a few pages back, and we know what happened with that 12th disciple. That 12th disciple was Judas, who was the one who betrayed Jesus, the one who took him to his death. These men are being reminded here. Matthew is reminding us that these men are showing up as a broken team as a fractured unit here. They're not arriving as the complete unit. They're arriving having lost one of their own. And then, when they see Jesus in verse 17 there, it says they worship, but some doubt it. Those are powerful words that Matthew is telling us about. The state of the disciples. In the midst of worship, they also have this doubt that's clinging on to them in some way. They find doubt and difficulty believing Believing any of this is even real. And this is a reminder here that these disciples, just like every one of us in this room, are fully, unequivocally, and irrevocably human. And just like every other human, they know people don't rise from the dead. That doesn't happen. Gods don't become servants. Kings don't die. That's not how this system works. And so when Matthew tells us that they're doubting in the midst of their worship here, he's reminding us us of an essential Christian truth, that your doubts and difficulties and hesitations don't disqualify you from following Jesus. That your hesitancies in a life of faith are not a thing that Jesus runs away from. Perfect faith is not a requisite for being a Christian. Notice Jesus, when he responds to these disciples in the midst of their doubt and worship, he comes to them, the text says. In the middle of their doubt and worship, Jesus arrives to this broken, fractured unit. And think about this. These guys are looking at the man that they watched crucified. They're seeing him in front of their eyes. This is the resurrected Jesus, right? And if at any point, this would be the time to believe this is it, right? And they're like, wait, hold on a second. This is weird. Like, this, this story is crazy. What's going on here? And yet, they show up. In the middle of their doubts, in the middle of their hesitation, in the middle of their difficulty, they limp to Jesus and worship In the middle of an ocean of doubt, they continue to trust in their Savior. And so we learn at this moment, right at this juncture, what discipleship of Jesus really looks like for us. It's not some cheesy calligraphy sign you buy from Hobby Lobby and hang up on your wall. Though those are okay if you have those. That's not what discipleship is. Discipleship is not nice words from a book that make us feel better about ourselves. Discipleship is not, as C.S. Lewis said, soft soap and wishful thinking. Discipleship is the rational critic right alongside childlike wonder. It's the full acknowledgement of my brokenness right alongside the knowledge of the one who can fully heal me. It's the tragedy right alongside the comedy. It's the cross, and it's the resurrection. It's choosing to trust a Christ who fully knows me and fully loves me. That's what discipleship looks like here. And the reality is, before we start having spiritual conversations with other people, we need to remember who we are. That's what Matthew is doing here. He's reminding us, well, hey, being a disciple will mean having doubts and hesitations. And every one of us in this room can resonate with that at some point. Even if it's not this morning, we all have been in places where we've thought we're too broken for Jesus to redeem us, that we're too inconsistent for Jesus to actually love us, that we are fundamentally flawed, and that no Lord could actually love us. We have those doubts. Those exist in our own lives, and those also exist in our hesitations about sharing our faith with other people. We tend to think that, well, because we don't have all the answers, right, or we don't speak super well, or we don't know how to start the conversation, that we just disqualify ourselves entirely. We doubt our own individual spiritual lives, but we also doubt our ability to share about it. And yet Jesus meets us there. He comes to us, and he says, "It's okay. I knew you weren't going to be perfect. I knew you we were going to be messy. I lived with you for three years, these disciples. I just ask one thing: trust. Me. Trust that I have the life that you've been longing for." Trust that I am bringing that life to everyone in the world. Trust. me. And friends, here's the truth. Trust is the only way we can actually test our doubts. In order to test any doubt, we have to trust in something. In order to know if a chair will hold me up, I have to trust that chair, right? All of you have exemplified trust by being in this room right now, sitting on a chair. You chose to trust the chair and believe that it wouldn't fall the only way to know if my wife will love me until the day I die is if I marry her. The only way to know if becoming a parent is worth all of the hype is if you become a parent. Our whole life, we make decisions based on trust in the middle of doubt and faith. And The only way we can find out if this life of following Jesus is really worth it is if we try it. And the only way to know that Jesus can use you to help someone else come into this life of following him is to try it. That's the only way to do this. And so right from the jump of this passage, before Jesus says anything, we are learning that we as disciples show up as an imperfect and fractured, traumatized group. And we are learning to trust Jesus in the middle of our hesitations, in the middle of our doubts. And we do that because we trust that the life that he has for us in the world is worth it. And so at that point, once verses 16 and 17 pass, we get Jesus' first words in this passage. And Jesus, almost as if he senses this kind of doubt and hesitation in them, he tells them what they're trusting in. Right? That's important for us. right? If we're going to give our trust in something, we've got to know it's reliable. You all came in and saw chairs with four legs. Some of you sat in these chairs, so you know. right? If there was a rickety chair with three legs and cobwebs on it, you might not trust that to sit on right? You need to know what you're trusting in. And Jesus reminds us what we're trusting in as his disciples here. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now that's striking because he doesn't exclude anything. He's making the claim here that every other authority that attempts to influence us, every other authority that we could trust in, it pales in comparison to him. So those political authorities, those social authorities, those physical authorities, those emotional authorities... They're ultimately subject to him and his authority he is the god over everything seen and unseen and this is something all of us need to hear again and this year has reminded us maybe different than any other year we've lived through how insufficient the authorities are we trusted maybe for you it's been money maybe it's been health maybe it's been sex maybe it's been conservative agendas or liberal agendas the list goes on, worldly authorities are not trustworthy. They will always fail us eventually. And the reality is the crisis simply exposes what was always true. And if it wasn't COVID that took those things away, it would be the next thing. That's the reality of trusting in worldly authorities. And so by saying here that all authority now belongs to him, Jesus is telling each of us that in that world of insufficient authorities, that he has real, lasting authority, and that nothing can stop that from happening. And this authority that he has, well, it's rooted in a thing that he came to earth to bring, the kingdom of heaven. That's what his whole ministry was about. He's saying, look, the kingdom of heaven, I have authority now that is mine, and I'm bringing it to the world, and nothing can stop it. Nothing, nothing else that can satisfy our longings. That kingdom of heaven is the cleansing of the Great Pacific garbage patch, that island of garbage floating in the ocean right now. It's the cleansing of that. It's man justice for Ahmad Harbor. It's the alcoholic who has found freedom from his vice. It's this bountiful, expansive banquet table with sumptuous foods and overflowing drinks. That's the kingdom of heaven. And nothing can stop it from coming. There's a great great, uh, quote by a guy named Frederick Buechner. He's one of my favorite authors. A few of you might know of him. I've got the quote up here. It's a long, but it's worth following along with. He says, if only we had eyes to see and ears to hear and wits to understand, we would know that the kingdom of God, in a sense of holiness, goodness, beauty, is as close as breathing and is trying out to be born both within ourselves and within the world. And we would know that the kingdom of God is what all of us hunger for above all other things, even when we don't know its name or realize that it's what we're starving to death for. The kingdom of God is where our best dreams come from and our truest prayers. We glimpse it at those moments when we find ourselves being better than we are and wiser than we know. We catch sight of it at some moment of a crisis, a strength seems to come to us that is greater than our own strength. The kingdom of God is where we belong. It is home. And whether we realize it or not, I think we are all homesick for it. It's what all of us are longing for. It's everything that we try to put in those worldly authorities that don't satisfy us. It's the real lasting satisfaction and healing we're longing for. That's the authority that we're trusting in, in Jesus. And nothing is stopping coming. That's what we're going into the world and inviting people into. Jesus is reminding us here that that's what our spiritual conversations are pointing to. And then, finally, from there, Jesus gives us some stuff to do. First, he makes sure that we know fully the kingdom of heaven is his and it's arriving in the world. And now, we get stuff to do. He gives us four things in this passage in verses 19 through 19 20. The first thing he tells us to do is to go. And sometimes, those of us who have been raised in the church for a while, think of this as implying distance. Right? That when we go, we've got to travel to some remote place across the world to proclaim the gospel. And that's a good thing to do. That is certainly part of the command here, but that's not the only thing. Notice, Jesus says that we go into all nations. All nations means that remote place across the world, but all nations includes this nation. All nations includes your neighbor and your coworker and your friends. This is not a work for special designated missionaries, a few special experts that we fund to go somewhere else. This is a job for every disciple. In Greek, here the verb for go—it's it's a unique verb. The idea behind it is more like. people along with you in this journey. And that should be encouraging to us because so often we think we need all the answers. Right? When we go into a spiritual conversation we need to know what we're doing every time. But right here in Jesus' command we see that our call is simply to invite people to follow Jesus right alongside us. It's saying to those people around us, hey, I'm doing this Jesus following thing and it's changing my life. You should come and check it out. Come and see, because it might change your life too. And the reality is, this command here, as you go sharing, it's just our human nature. Jesus is commanding us to do what we already do with every other thing we're passionate about in our lives. Think about how many times you said to a friend, "Man, this movie changed my life. You need to watch this movie," or "This song or this artist, they changed my life, right? You need to listen to them." This restaurant, incredible, changed my life. You need to come in me. We have those conversations on a regular basis. Jesus is simply saying, hey, I've changed your life. Invite people into what has already happened to you. He's telling us to share about him in the middle of our lives as we go. There's a story a uh, a pastor that I know tells uh, of an Uber ride he was on. And in this Uber ride, uh, he's starting to talk with the Uber driver as you tend to do. And the Uber driver eventually asked him what he did for work. And he's like, well, I'm a pastor. And the Uber driver's like, oh, that's really cool. I just became a believer a couple of weeks ago. And the pastor's like, awesome, tell me your story. What happened? He's, uh, the start of the story, the pastor says, was incredible. He says, well, I really love this place called Buffalo Wild Wings. <laughs> <laughs> and pastor's like, this is going to be great. And the guy continues. He's like, yeah, there was one Buffalo Wild Wings close to my house. And uh, I started going there on a regular basis. And I got to know people. And there was this one waitress that was often there when I was there. So we got to know each other a little bit. Converse, right? I'm there for years, right? I I go consistently for multiple years. And over the course of time, she started to invite me to her church. And at first, I was like, man, those religious crazies, I want no part of, of that. But then he started to get to know her a little bit better. And he's like, but she's not one of those religious crazies. She's kind. She's compassionate. She's thoughtful. She's smart. So eventually, one Christmas, she invited him to the Christmas Eve service, and he came. He's like, I showed up, and the crazies weren't there for me. <laughs> Everyone was kind and welcome, and they cared about me as a person. And so he kept coming over and over, and eventually, he learned that this Jesus had something that nothing else in the world could offer him. This Jesus had transformation for him, and had healing for him. And he gave his life to following that Friends, if an anonymous Buffalo Wild Wings waitress can do this, every single one of you can do this. And that's not a belittling of the service industry, by the way. But I'm just saying, when she goes into work, she's thinking about, like, I've got to get food to people, and I've got to get drinks to people, and I'm tired, and I'm on my feet all the time, right? And she still found a way in the middle of her brokenness to invite people to the Jesus that changed their life. As we go, we do this. That's the first time command. Now the second command, this is the central command that Jesus gives. And all the other commands kind of fall around it. This is the command that you see that says make disciples in your Bible, or something along those lines. And the verb used here is literally disciple, which is an interesting verb. Jesus doesn't use a verb like convert or win. Disciple is a little bit less aggressive than those words. To disciple someone or to bring someone into becoming a disciple is simply to invite them to learn with you on the journey. It's to invite them to come covered in the dust of a rabbi. And so that means that this making disciples, is not coercive. It's not forced onto someone. It's an invitation for each person to learn from him, to know him, to feel his presence, and to be healed by him. And they do that right alongside us. We aren't the experts in this journey. Jesus Everything we know, we learn from him. And so we're inviting people, hey, come learn from him with me as well. Making disciples is a relational work. It requires investment and prayer, honest dialogue, good, hard questions, and above everything, love. Loving your neighbor. And this, again, I think bears itself out in reality in our human nature and how this discipleship journey really looks for us. I don't know everyone's story in this room. But I would venture to say that you're in this room, or you've chosen to follow Jesus, or you're thinking about choosing to follow Jesus, because someone has poured into you relationally. Because some Christian, some disciple has loved you. So if you think back through your past, you became a disciple because of a parent or a pastor. You became a disciple because volunteers or co-workers or friends, they poured into you. All of us start following Jesus because a Christian has invested, prayed, Loved and invited us to know Jesus with them. Miroslav Bol, he's a, a theologian alive right now, he puts this, I think, pretty profoundly and simply for us. If evangelism, witnessing to other people around us, isn't an expression of love of neighbor, it isn't Christian evangelizing. And love of neighbor includes not only what I say to the neighbor, but how I say that. That's what we're called to do, love our neighbors so profoundly that they see nothing but Jesus in our lives and want to be drawn to him. It's not about us. It's about Christ. So that's the second command here. And then from that second command, there's two more that kind of fall beneath. The third and fourth command, are baptize and teach. Now, baptize first. We'll cover that one. When we learn the news that Jesus has forgiven us, right? when we have heard what he's done for us on the cross and in the resurrection, And that he loves us and he's offering new life to us. Our first step to becoming a disciple is to receive what he has already done for us. It's simply to receive what Jesus has done on the cross. And that means we respond by committing ourselves to these sorts of notions. That that the path of our old life was leading to darkness and emptiness and decay. That the life we were living in those insufficient authorities is not leading me towards goodness and truth and eternal love. And so Jesus, I believe that you have those things, goodness and you, eternal love. And so I submit my life to you. That's what this discipleship journey looks like at the start. And then the reality is when that happens to us, we want to indicate and receive it pretty loudly because it's changed us in some way. And so Christians do this thing called baptism. And baptism is a reception of what Jesus has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. It's this movement from a previous life of darkness and brokenness into a life of light and healing. Something happens in discipleship. It's not just a, a symbol that we throw out there. It's an actual transfer of identity from being defined by my own mistakes and my own accomplishments to being defined by who Jesus is. It's an adoption into eternal family. That's what baptism looks like, and he commands us to do that, to, to have people make this move from a life of darkness and decay into a life of goodness and beauty. And then from there, we don't stop. I think sometimes many Christians can tend to think, oh, we got people baptized. Good, they're saved. They punch their ticket to heaven, right? That's not what discipleship looks like. And Jesus says it here. He says that after people are baptized, we teach. That's our job to one another. Once people have been welcomed into this family, the process doesn't stop. Jesus is saying that a life of discipleship involves a process of healing of following him closely and knowing him deeply. Eugene Peterson calls this a long obedience in the same direction. That's what the Christian life looks like. And so baptism, that's the starting point. It's not the end game. That's where things really get going. From there, we're supposed to sit and learn alongside all these other disciples. And from there, we learn more and more what it means to experience this new identity. On January 28th, 2017, uh, something pretty crazy happened to me. I became a husband. Ooh. Now, yeah, super exciting. But everyone was kind of like, oh, that's happened to me. It was quiet it was <laughs> Boom, that's a lot. No, being a husband is, is amazing and awesome. Uh, so on that date, I became a husband. But my response to becoming a husband was not, cool, Good. kick back, relax, don't have to love my wife. She's locked in for life. <laughs> That wasn't my response here. I wasn't punching my ticket to the end of my life. Instead, in learning to be a husband, I commit to becoming a better husband every day as well as I can. And I don't do that to win her favor. My wife has already named me her husband. There's nothing that takes that status away. I don't do that to earn her love. I do that out of response to her love. I do that because every day of marriage, I am becoming more and more of who I already am as a husband. And so I do the dishes more, and I make dinner more often. And I get her tissues when she needs them, and I listen to her when she tells me I'm affected her. And don't hear me saying that I'm perfect, I am far from it. And my wife comes to this church as well. You can talk to her about all the ways that I messed up as I husband. But the reality is I'm committing to realizing more and more who I am as a husband every day. And being a cycle is kind of the same thing. When you receive what Jesus has done for you in baptism, you are brought into the family of God. You are a disciple. And from there, being a Christian means becoming more and more of who you already are. Being taught in the faith. And so when we make disciples, we're not just helping people punch their eternal ticket to heaven. Though that is part of it, eternal life with Jesus. That's not the whole thing. We're actually inviting them into a transformed life starting here and now a life that participates in that kingdom of God and the restoration of all things. We invite them into this journey of experiencing and living in the joy and goodness of knowing Jesus deeply every day. So those are the things that Jesus gives us to do here. Go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. And then from there, in case that sounds a little too overwhelming, in case that's a lot of information, he reminds us in verse 20 that he's the one who's with us doing this work. He says, I am with you always to the end of the age. As disciples and disciple-makers, we must always remember where the dust comes from in our lives. It doesn't come from our own excellence. It doesn't come from how great we are. Morally, it comes from being close to Jesus Christ. And he's with us as we share this faith, as we go out in the world to proclaim it. A few months ago, I celebrated my my father-in-law's birthday with my in-laws, with my wife's family. He really wanted to go ATV riding. He really wanted like an an adrenaline-like pump, I guess. So we we go up to Cottonwood, Arizona. Uh, No Cottonwood fans, it wasn't a cheer. That's okay. Uh, We we go up to Cottonwood and we rent a couple ATVs. There's eight of us total. So they're four-person ATVs and they've got these roll cages. We've got to throw on these goggles. It's really intense and fun. And uh, we go out into the Verde Valley, if anybody's familiar. Their drone is not far from there. We're driving around these dusty and rocky roads, and these things are awesome. But there wasn't a whole lot of rain last year, if you knew that in Arizona, not a whole lot of rain. And that meant the roads were really dusty. And so as we're driving, it becomes very clear, we have these goggles on so we don't become blind. Like, there's so much dust that we're kicking up. And so I was in the front ATV, and we're just kicking up a ton of dust. Right? And I'm getting covered in it. I thought, man, this is a bummer. I'm going to have to take like, a two-hour shower after this. <laughs> And then we stopped at one point to get a drink of water and kind of map out where we were. And I noticed uh, the people behind us, the other four folks in the ATV and my family, they had at least three times the amount of dust on them. Because we had kicked up dust on ourselves, but we had also kicked up so much more on them, right? They were following closely behind us and they got dusty. I've actually got a picture of my brother in law and sister in law here. Like, you can't even see out of the goggles. And then I've got another picture here of uh, powdered donuts because that's what they look like. <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> They're covered in, in dust, right? And I think that story, that metaphor works pretty well for what the discipleship is. When we're on the road of following Jesus, it's inevitable that we're going to get dusty, right? But it doesn't stop there. Our job is to kick up as much dust onto the world around us as we can to get everyone else covered in our dust, to create powdered donuts all around us. And so, guys, let's be dusty people. Let's cling so tightly to Jesus, walk so closely behind him that we step on his sandals from time to time. Let's go into our workplaces, let's go into our Zoom meetings, let's go into our classrooms, our neighborhoods, our restaurants, and let's get everyone else dusty as well. In fact, i want to ask everybody in the room to close their eyes real quick. Take a, a deep breath. Now picture, in your mind's eye, a friend or a neighbor or a coworker who doesn't know Jesus. Really picture them. Notice the expression that's on their face. The posture that they have. Now open your eyes. Can you commit to loving this one person so well, that they might become dusty right alongside? Can you commit to inviting them in the midst of the relationship you already have with them to abundant, freeing, joy-filled kingdom life? Because Jesus has that authority. The kingdom can do that. He's changed the world through 11 broken and limping people. He can definitely do it with this room. He can powerfully work through each and every one of you. So let's leave this morning our couches if we're online, or these chairs if we're here in person. Let's leave here and go into our weeks and invite people to this sort of abundant, free, and full life. Guys, let's go and kick up some dust. Would you pray?